Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. And in this podcast, we're walking through the comedy passage by passage, and we are up to the start of Canto 6 of Inferno, lines 1 through 33. And we're ready to enter the third circle of hell. So without any further ado, let's just do that. Here's the passage. When I came back to my mind, after it shut down over the pity I'd felt for those two family members, which had thoroughly mixed me up with sadness, new torments and new examples of the tormented I see all around me, whichever way I move or turn myself or direct my sight, I am in the third circle, the one with the eternal, cursed, freezing, and leaden rain, which is never made new in either measure or quality. Giant hailstones, fetid water and snow fall down through the darkened air. The ground that sucks it all up is rancid. Cerberus, a horrid and cruel beast, barks from his three throats as a dog over the people who are submerged here. His eyes are scarlet, his beard is oily and black, his gut is swollen and his hands have talons. He mauls, flays, and quarters the spirits. The downpour makes them howl like dogs. They toss and turn from one side to the other, trying to shield their profanely miserable selves. When Cerberus, that tremendous worm, noticed us, he unlatched his mouth and showed off his fangs. No part of himself was held still. At which point, my leader extended his hands, grabbed some dirt, and threw full fists of it into the ravenous windpipes. Just as a dog that lets it rip when it's hungry and quiets itself when it wolfs down its dinner, abandoning itself to chewing, just so those foul, ugly muzzles of that demon Cerberus were stilled, who otherwise is so loud that those souls wish they were deaf. Okay, that's the passage. As you know, this is my rough translation into English of the passage from the medieval Tuscan. If you want to see this, please go to my website, markscarbo.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can see actually my translation, or you can follow along in another translation, even a facing page with the medieval Tuscan. This passage doesn't necessarily break into easy parts. It's just the arrival in the third circle and Cerberus and that whole bit. So I just kind of want to work through this in piece by piece, line by line, just read it through and show you some of the problems in the passage and some of the interpretive knots. Canto 6 is not quite as fraught as Canto 5 in The Lustful. As you know, that was quite a fraught canto. This canto, not so much, although it's got its problems, and it's particularly got its problems as it reflects back to Canto 5. But we'll get into all that as we go forward and find out what happens in this third circle of hell. So let's just start at the beginning. When I came back to my mind, and I just stopped, listen up. Got a few words in and stopped. When it came back to my mind, this canto, although we don't yet see it in this passage, so I'm giving away the plot, this canto is about the gluttons. This is the circle of hell reserved for the gluttons. And we should know, of course, that gluttony is a very physical sin, eating way more than your share. And so when this bit opens, when I came back to my mind, 
We're then called forward in the canto that is going to be incredibly physical. And you can already see how physical this is. Well, we had wind in the fifth canto. In this canto, we have hailstones and fetid water and snow and rancid ground underneath. This canto is incredibly physical. Even Cerberus in this passage, his fangs, his beard, his eyes, his gut, his hands, I mean, everything is just driving toward physicality, and particularly in these opening bits. So when I came to my mind, or I came to my mentality, when I came to my thought processes, we're being set up here for a mind-body split that's going to go on throughout this canto. And we'll talk more about it, particularly when we get into the latter parts of the canto. Back to the beginning. When I came back to my mind, after it had shut down over the pity that I felt for those two family members, I translated this as family members. The term in the Tuscan probably actually means in-laws. And this is one last glancing look back at Canto V and Francesca and Paolo and all that bit. And by using this word here, family members for Francesca and Paolo, we're given just that soups on that little hint of incest. And remember I told you in that big list that Virgil gives in Canto V, that long list of, of the lustful up on the wind, the historical figures, the first three were connected with incest. And here, we just got that look back by identifying Paolo and Francesca. Yes, they're, they're brother-in-law, sister-in-law. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a woman with her brother-in-law. But still, it just gives us this little ring of incest right here on our final look back at them. Thereby, in some ways, putting to death my case for Francesca. Or maybe the case for Francesca can only be made with Francesca present. And now that she's gone, mm, now it seems much more cut and dried. Over the pity I'd felt for those two family members, it goes on, which had thoroughly mixed me up with sadness. So let's come to this question. How does Dante descend a level? We've seen this problem once before with Karen and his boat and, and Dante getting across Acarante and, well, we don't really know how he got across, but fainting on the shore and then waking up on the other shore. Here we have him coming down between levels, between this level of the lustful with the winds and here into this atmospheric weather-dominated canto with hail and water and snow. There's a rough transition point here, right? We've got the wind up in Canto 5, and then we would come to this place where a storm is raging. Just give me that a storm can happen underground. I know it's tough. I know how can it hail in a cave? How can it rain and snow in a cave? I know, I know, I know. But if, as a medieval, you think that winds trapped are trapped in the earth and that they cause earthquakes, as I told you before, this notion that there would be storms underground is actually not all that out of the pale. But let's just go between the levels. Why here? Why we? I, okay, so I made a big deal about corporeality and all of that stuff when he fell asleep at. Karen at the shore of Acarante with Karen. But why here? Why can't he wake up back there with the lustful and then descend a level? This is always my hunch. There seems to be a way that Francesca, and I think it is particularly Francesca, but maybe all of the lustful, but Francesca is sealed off from the rest of comedy. There seems to be a way that that scene is so dramatic and so big 
that it almost gets this wall, not just Dante passing out, but the whole question of how does he traverse from one level to the next. Later later in, in Inferno and then, of course, in Purgatorio, the question of how you get from one level to another is gigantic and it's answered. We actually see Dante struggling between the cornices of Purgatory and we'll actually see him in hell getting from one level to another and scrambling down and all that kind of stuff. Here, it's almost as if a curtain is dropped on Francesca. At least that's the way it's always read to me. It's very abrupt. Not just the fainting, but just the waking up. How'd he get here? Did Virgil carry him? Mm, you know, that would cause me all kinds of problems if Virgil carried him. All right. So passing on, we're just assuming that it's a problem and it's going to sit there and we're not going to be able to solve it. There may be one way, but let me give it to you. Uh, passing on, he says, which they thoroughly mix me up with sadness. And then he says, the pilgrim, new torments and new examples of the tormented. I see, and we're in the present tense, all around me. I take it in this case, this is not the poet speaking because it's the present tense. I take it that this is truly that uh, present tense used for past, event, past events because they're so vivid. So new torments and new examples of tormented. I see all around me, whichever way I move or turn myself or direct my sight. Let me give this to someone else. Professor Teodolinda Barolini at Columbia, the great Dante scholar, claims that with this one little bit, this one tiny bit of passage here, Dante brushes aside all the, and I'm going to use Professor Barolini's words, the lush romanticism of Francesca. That just It's brushed right aside with new torments and new examples of the tormented, as if Dante is not going to be stuck writing that kind of poetry, but he's going to turn and write a different kind of poetry here. She links all of this out to a larger meta movement in the poem from one poetic style to another, from a medieval romance style now to a different style that's going to be written here. It's interesting. It's an interesting idea. And maybe that's why the curtain is dropped. Maybe that's why the break between the two cantos and between the two levels is so harsh. Okay, moving on. I am in the third circle, so it's just stated straight out. The one with the eternal cursed freezing and leaden rain, which is never made new in either measure or quality. That's a tough line in the Tuscan, which is never made new in either measure or quality. And I, I basically just left it exactly as it falls in the text, which is never made new in either measure or quality. It's tough because what you're dealing with here is Aristotelian references. Measure, that is the quantity, the measurable attributes of something, and quality, the nature of something. And you're dealing with basic Aristotelian thought here. This I'm just going to hold because this will become important at the end of the canto. But it's interesting that at the very beginning of the canto, we're being thrown onto the way Aristotelian thought mm, quantifies and categorizes matter and action. So here, given that, we're told that this is eternal, cursed, freezing, lead, and rain, and it just doesn't change, which is never made new in either measure or quality. It may be new torments, but it's all the same here. Giant hailstones, fetid water, snow, fall down through the darkened air. The ground that sucks it all up is rancid. All right, again, this is the canto of the gluttons. We don't know this yet, so what I'm telling you now has to be back read. In the next episode of this podcast, we'll actually have someone admit that these are the gluttons, and it will become clear why they're here. So when we've read through and read his discussion of gluttony, we then know all of that, but here we have to kind of back read this. Anyway, the whole point of this is this is an inversion of agricultural fertility. 
hailstones. I mean, this would destroy crops. Water what crops need, except now it's fetid or murky or black water. Snow, which would, of course, kill crops. They're falling down through the darkened air and the ground, the earth through which food grows. That which gives agricultural bounty is just being destroyed here. The ground is rancid. The weather is horrible. Nothing here would grow a crop. Lust is all about wind. Gluttony is all about water and earth because it's about eating what the things that come from water and earth. So this is a horrid inversion of agricultural methods, a kind of torquing on its head of what you need to grow food. They come from this and then they see Cerberus. Cerberus is our third beast villain demon thing. Uh, we had Charon, then we had Minos, and we have Cerberus. And you'll notice that Cerberus is vicious, he's voracious. After all, he's an adequate reference for gluttony because he's got three heads and thus three throats, and he can eat more than any dog ever could, this three-headed thing. But you'll also notice that as we're running down the list here, from Charon to Minos to Cerberus, everything's getting more for lack of a better word, bestial and nonverbal. Cerberus doesn't say anything. He snarls and barks. It's true. What Cerberus does is nonverbal but understandable communication. Just wait till Canto 7 when we get <laughs> completely ununderstandable communication from the figure standing at the front of Canto 7. So we've run from Karen, who's a bit of a chatterbox, talks a bit. We've run from him through Minos, who doesn't say much when he judges, just his tail wraps around, but he does talk to Dante and Virgil, to hear to Cerberus, the three-headed dog. And of course, we can't think of Cerberus without thinking of Virgil and the Aeneid. Cerberus stands right there when Aeneas and the Sibyl cross the Acarante, come across the river on Karen's boat, and there stands the three-headed dog. Once again, we're hearkening back to Virgil's Aeneid by Cerberus standing here, but he seems a very fitting example of the sin of gluttony with his three throats. The text says, a horrid and cruel beast barks from his three throats as a dog. And you'll notice that it's as a dog, which is kind of interesting. There's a lot of dog imagery in this canto. It's predominant, in fact, in places. But in fact, is Cerberus here a dog? In Virgil, no doubt, three-headed dog here. Interesting. Barks, yes, that's a dog, over three, the, uh, from his three throats over the people who were submerged there into the muck, into the rancid ground. But then that next tercet, his eyes are scarlet, his beard is oily and black, his gut is swollen, and his hands have talons. He seems like some kind of weird bestial human hybrid. Hands have talons, beard. I mean, I, I guess I have, collie, I have rough collies as dogs. They kind of have beards, not really. I guess some terriers do, but it all seems very weird and some kind of wild bestial human hybrid thing that's going on here. And it says he mauls, flays, and quarters the spirits. Now, I'm going to just not even comment on it because it's going to come up too much in the next episode. But you explained to me how you can flay the skin off a spirit. I mean, that is what flaying is, right? So how does this all work? 
how do you flay a spirit, a non-corporeal being? The downpour makes them howl like dogs. I mean, apparently, the, the of course, giant hailstones would have hurt, but apparently even the rain hurts. The downpour makes them howl like dogs. They toss and turn on on one side to the other, trying to shield the profoundly miserable self. You know, he in other words, he flays one side, so then they turn and then they try to give him the other side so he doesn't rip what's already ripped, and then he rips that, and... It's just a kind of unbelievably chaotic, over-the-top scene. When Cerberus, the tremendous worm, noticed us, he unlatched his mouth and showed off his fangs. No part of himself was held still. That's a really important line for what comes in other parts of this canto. So let's just hold that. Just remember, in future episodes on Canto 6, no part of Cerberus was held still. He couldn't hold himself in check. He just tremored and shook and, you know, was just an agitated mess. At which point, my leader, Virgil, extended his hands, grabbed some dirt, and threw full fists of it, both fists, picks up this rancid ground, both fists, full fists of it, into the ravenous windpipes. All right, two things. How does Virgil pick up dirt? You know I'm going to say that at this point. You know I'm going to always drive back to the corporeal problems. How does Virgil, a shade, pick up the dirt? How did it not fall through his hands? How is all that possible here? It's mm, difficult. Difficult to say the least, especially when you have a pain-based notion of the afterlife. It is very difficult to figure it out. But Virgil does something here that Virgil's characters don't do in the Aeneid. And I want to read you the passage in the Aeneid in which Cerberus appears with Aeneas and the Sibyl. This is once again from the Robert Fagel's translation. So uh, if, if you want to look it up in the translation, it's in book six, oh, about line 478. It's about 20 lines earlier in the Latin in, in the Aeneid. But look, this is the translation from Fagel. These are the realms that monstrous Cerberus rocks with howls, braying out of his three throats, his enormous bulk squatting low in the cave that faced them there. The Sibyl, who's directing Aeneas, seeing the serpents writhe around his neck, so Cerberus has some kind of snakes going around him, tossed him a sop slumberous with honey and drugged seed. And he, frothing with hunger, three jaws spread wide, snapped it up where the Sibyl had tossed it, gone. His tremendous back relaxed, he sags to the earth and sprawls over all of his cave's giant hulk limp. The watchdog buried now in sleep, and he seizes the way in, quickly clear of the river's edge, the point of no return. Okay, just that. Usually that's interpreted as a honey cake, that the Sybil throws some kind of honeyed sweet at Cerberus to bribe him. It's got some kind of drug soporific in it, and he falls asleep. You notice how Dante has revisioned that here. This Cerberus is not fed a honeyed cake or a honeyed sweet with drugs in it. There's no bribe here. Instead, this is the very dirt, the muck that Cerberus is standing in. And Virgil picks it up and throws it into the windpipes, and the thing settles down. Interesting innovation, interesting shift that's gone on from Virgil to Dante as, as Dante has rewritten Virgil. It's not that they're bribing this demon thing, this dog-like thing. It's rather that Virgil seems to be using what's at hand rather than a trick he brought with him. And that might be very important. 
Think about what it would mean allegorically. Think about how I would dance on the allegory if Virgil pulled a honey cake out of his pocket and threw it into Cerberus's mouth. You know that that would become so fraught with Christian allegory and so fraught with classical allegory that the classical figure has some kind of sweet in his pocket, some kind of treat, and he's able to throw it down and look what classical literature can do. And yeah, you can hear it. You can hear me banging on about that very problem inside this passage, but it's not. Instead, Virgil picks up the rancid ground and throws it into the, the, the dog-like thing's mouths. That tells us that Virgil is mm, making it up as he goes along, that he's using what's at hand, that he's not resorting to classical literature or to, to what his own characters resorted to in the Aeneid. I mean, Virgil wrote this. Doesn't Virgil know what that Cerberus needs a honey cake and he's on this journey with Dante and shouldn't he have something in his pockets? But you notice that that doesn't happen here. Instead, what seems to happen is that how do I say this, that in gluttony there's a kind of perpetual self-consumption, that the gluttons are sunk down in this muck that produces food, and later we're going to meet one of them, and they're in it, sunk in it, as is Cerberus, and they're all kind of devouring, slithering around, eating this stuff that is just in constant cyclical motion. There's a very gross scatological point going on here, and I'm just going to skip over it and not bring it up to the fore in the podcast, but I'll let you keep that in your head for a second because that's the point. The point is that they're eating what's not edible, and they're rolling around in what could not produce more food, and this whole thing is just unbelievably circular, and wait, because that's the canto. It's going to have a kind of crazy circularity about it, I'm like a snake eating its own tail. But we got to get through the canto to get there. Let's just go at the last lines. Virgil has thrown the muck into Cerberus's mouths. And the passage says, just as a dog that lets it rip when it's hungry and quiets itself when it wolfs down its inner, abandoning itself to chewing. Notice that kind of like no part of himself was held still, just kind of letting everything, letting all the passions let it go, letting the freak flag fly, you know, just absolutely eating everything and abandoning itself to it, to chewing, to the appetites. Just so those foul, ugly muzzles of that demon Cerberus, demon Karen, demon Cerberus, classical Christian, all fused together, of that demon Cerberus were stilled, who otherwise is so loud that those souls wish they were deaf. This is the only simile in this canto. That was it. We just passed it. And honestly, it's not a very, how do we say, it's not a very enlightening or aesthetically pleasing simile. It's pretty... <laughs> a pun on it. It is pretty dogged at its heart. Just as a dog that lets it rip when it's hungry and quiets itself down when it will stand at dinner, abandoning itself to chewing, just so the foul, ugly muzzle of that demon Cerberus were still. That's not very enlightening. It's just kind of this like this. It's not those starlings. It's not those cranes. It's not those doves from Canto 5. It's very workaday as a simile. And this may be our point. This canto, Canto 6, as we will find out, is one of the shortest cantos. It's the shortest canto certainly we have yet to encounter, and it's one of the shortest in 
all of comedy. And there may be a way that Dante's theme is starting to race him along. He's feeling the pressure of the thematics. And rather than that long disquisition from Francesca that we got in the last canto, there may be a way in which, again, Dante is just trying to pick up the speed here. And so the canto is shortened. Listen to what I just read you. It's just all plot. There's very little cogitation. There's, there's, I don't see any intrusion from the poet into the pilgrim's um, narration of what's going on here, into the pilgrim's experience. And when we get to this one simile for the whole canto, it's not a very good simile. It's just it's kind of like a dog. It was a dog is kind of the way the simile goes. All of that said, I think we may be seeing that the pressure of the poem is starting to build in on the poet. At least I would posit that. And Dante, remember, we said earlier, he had made a comment about, I've got to be hurried on by my long theme. He may be feeling that a bit here in this passage, which is so much plot, so much going on, so chaotic, so condensed. It's nice. It's not, it's not leisurely in the least. And the simile in this passage is so truncated. Interesting from where we just came from, all of that lush stuff back in Canto V. So Barolini may be right that Dante is trying to push aside that kind of lushness and find a new genre, a new way to write. Let me just stop and say one thing about this. Medieval literature is written through and with what? you can call topoi. Topoi is the plural of topos, a Greek word that means place. Topos, one, many, topoi. Topos or place is actually a rhetorical strategy by which you have a set piece, a topos of something. There is, for example, a set confessio topos. That is where a character steps forward and confesses something or tells something about themselves. There are all kinds of topoi that get assembled together in medieval texts. Uh, if you know about Chaucer's uh, Canterbury Tales, you might know that some of the Canterbury Tales, like the Pardoner's Tale, are are basically assemblages of various topoi. The partner confesses his sins. The partner does this. The partner insults, gives invectives. Each of these are little pieces rhetorically that are pulled in. And mm, I don't want to say they're rehearsed, but it's how you would do it. Uh, let me give you an example. Let's say you wanted to write the plot of Emma. Jane Austen's Emma as a medieval. It's kind of silly, but let's just say you did. You wanted to write it. What you would do is you would fly in the topus of unrequited love, and then you'd fly in the topus of um, the romantic hero, right? You'd throw, throw that in. And then you'd fly in the topus of, of, of the kind of silly father figure. And then you'd fly in another topus about the young girl who gets everything wrong. <laughs> Each of these pieces would get assembled into a plot that runs down the course of the plot. And of course, as an artist, you would shape them, you would form them, but it's as if you're being given pieces to put together into a larger whole, like a painter with colors. You're going to blend them. You're going to mix them. You're going to change this orange a bit. You're going to change this brown a bit. But you know, these are basically the terms of the argument. Well, here we may have moved from, um, to use again Barlini's phrase, a lush topus of romantic romance love into a completely different kind of writing, a much more descriptive kind of writing. I would even argue an Aristotelian writing that tries to 
pull everything into its categories and explain it. And it may be part of the shift of the topos that's going on here underneath the text as the writer assembles the pieces of it. This is a lot to say about the quality and the praxis of medieval narrative. And we're going to come back to Topoi, gosh, endlessly before this is all over. But it's an important part to note it here because we may be moving out of one topus, romance, into a second topus here, a more uh, analytical look at the world, including a guard dog, which itself has become a bit of a topus with a set piece from Virgil's Aeneid, which is dropped down here. It may be fitting, and the poet may have shaped it toward this, and the poet have, may have made it mm, a kind of bestial human mix, but you're still working with pieces that you're assembling. And it's a completely different style of writing than modern writing might be. Okay, given all that, let's read the passage one more time. When it came back to my mind after it had shut down over the pity I felt for those two family members, which had thoroughly mixed me up with sadness, new torments and new examples of the tormented I see all around me, whichever way I move or turn myself or direct my sight. I am in the third circle, the one with the eternal cursed freezing and leaden rain, which is never made new in either measure or quality. Giant hailstones, fetid water and snow fall down through the darkened air. The ground that sucks it all up is rancid. Cerberus, a horrid and cruel beast, barks from his three throats as a dog over the people who are submerged here. His eyes are scarlet. His beard is oily and black. His gut is swollen and his hands have talons. He mauls, flays, and quarters the spirits. The downpour makes them howl like dogs. They toss and turn from one side to the other, trying to shield their profanely miserable selves. When Cerberus, that tremendous worm, noticed us, he unlatched his mouth and showed off his fangs. No part of himself was held still. At which point my leader extended his hands, grabbed some dirt, and threw full fists of it into the ravenous windpipes. Just as a dog that lets it rip when it's hungry, and quiets itself when it wolfs down its dinner, abandoning itself to chewing, just so those foul, ugly muzzles of that demon Cerberus were stilled, who otherwise is so loud that those souls wish they were deaf. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope you will consider subscribing to it. Oh, we got lots of gluttony let to go. Wow, we've got, we're just starting amongst the gluttons. So I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast. I hope that you'll give it a rating. Drop me a comment. If you're on markscarborough.com, you can be in the comments there. I'll respond to you as fast as I possibly can <laughs> as the comments come in. But you can respond there. I hope that you connect with me. The easiest way to connect with me is on Twitter under my name, Mark Scarborough. We can actually start a conversation about Dante on Twitter. This project has overwhelmed my life. And oh, what can I say? It's so nice to know that you're along for this journey with me and the pilgrim and the poet through the greatest work of Western literature. See you soon. <laughs>